This morning we're beginning a what will be a 25-26 week uh, study on, on the book of Ephesians. So I want to just kind of set this up just a little bit, give you a little bit of background, and then I pray for us, kind of give you the, uh, the, the forest perspective and pray for us, and then we're going to walk through the first six verses is my intention this morning. We might get bogged down and only make it through three. Good news is uh, I don't die, Christ doesn't return, we'll get to do uh, the rest of it next week. And so when you look at the book of Ephesians, it's this tremendous testimony, but it's radically different than some of the books that we've studied so far together. You remember we studied Philippians, they were having some difficulties, wrangling, trying to understand what unity looked like in the body, so he wrote them, really addressing that as kind of the central issue, finding unity in Christ and who he is and what he has done for the church and calling them together. So we went through that together, we went to James, and James basically said, so you're a Christian, now do something. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of it. If you want to boil it down, it's a lot of different things. But he's calling us to response. He said, your faith should produce works. It should produce works. Those works don't save you. But if you don't have works, that screams. It really screams in, 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 in your face and says, do you, in fact, have faith? James teaches us that faith should have works. And then we worked our way through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And we're studying. We're coming to understand what the church is how we all fit in and a part of that. What does our leadership look like? What does it look like to be a member in that body? But as we turn to the book of Ephesians, we don't see a whole lot of problems addressed. Instead, we see really what is over chapters one through three, this great understanding of doctrine, of of theology, of understanding who God is, what he has done for us, what he's calling us to. And then in four through six, chapters four through six, it's You know this, now apply this, and these are all the different ways it breaks out. And so we see this brilliant treatment of marriage in chapter 5, and so we're going to spend some time talking to husbands, and your wives are like, yes, finally, but do I really have to wait five chapters? No, you can read ahead. Like, you can read ahead. You should encourage him also to read ahead, but we're also going to talk about the wives' role. We're going to talk about your children's role as parents, how you lead your children, as children, how you respond to the leading of your parents, and we're going to talk about the church's ultimate submission to Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous letter, and it's going to take us a number of weeks and, uh, and, in fact, months to make it through. Let me read for us the first six verses, and then we will begin to walk through. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. As we open up this book of Ephesians, it is instructive and helpful for us, at least informative for us, to look at the inception beginning of this church here in Ephesus. If you flip over a few pages to the left, you'll find yourself in Acts 19. Well, in Acts 19, we find that Paul is there in Ephesus, and he is about and doing ministry. But what I want to really drive at is the transformative power of the ministry that Paul is able to be a part of in Ephesus. I want you to grasp to see what it looks like in a community when God just breaks loose. It doesn't mean that there's no opposition. 
Like some of us think that if God were to break loose in Greenville, Texas, that you could leave your doors unlocked, that you could leave your, your cars just kind of primed and ready with a little sign that says, you know, take, borrow if you need. I trust you'll return it. You'll leave a 20 on the seat. And, and like, you think that's kind of how it will be, that if our community breaks loose, that when people start coming to Jesus, that the immoral portion of our society will look at it and say, you know what, I'm just gonna leave them alone. It's cool. Like they've got God over there and I just don't wanna be a bother. I don't wanna interrupt the good thing they've going. But what we see here in Acts 19 is that even in a place where Paul had poured in two years of his life, two plus years of his life, working, laboring in this community. Look here. Look here, we see a riot break out in verse 21. Paul is doing and he's spreading the gospel and it is not going good for the silversmith unionists there in Ephesus. And so they break out and they rally the troops and say, look, we need to come against this guy. He is harming the bottom line. He is rallying against those people that need to buy our idols. Like, I don't know how it's been for you, but, but I haven't seen anybody at my idol shop lately. This has to stop. And so the, the forces of darkness are pushing back against Paul. But look at this. Even those people who have yet to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, we find the sons of Sceva, sons of the high priest, they recognize that Paul is about a mighty and different work. This is amazing stuff. Verse 11 of chapter 19, Luke writes, he says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them. Look at this, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. This is it. This would be like if somebody walked into Walmart and they saw some of the things that go on in Walmart and, and, they, and they walked up and they said, look, I'm gonna handle this, I'm gonna take care of this. And they said, I adjure you, I command you in the name of the Jesus that Justin Milton proclaims, stop it. Everybody around is like, who's Justin Milton? But the evil spirit comes out and says, I know who Justin is, I know who Jesus is, but I don't know you. The evil spirits there in Ephesus, they cried out at the name of Paul, the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They cried out at the name of Jesus Christ. But when they heard these imposters step in and seek to use it as some type of hack phrase, or proper phraseology, their response was, who are you? We know Jesus, we've heard of Paul, but who in fact are you? And this is the beginning of the church there at Ephesus. But when we come into our book, when we come into our book study proper here, we find that Paul is most likely writing from a Roman imprisonment. This is most likely written around the same time that he wrote the book to the Colossians and that he wrote the book to the church at Philippi, which we had studied previously. So you're thinking 80, 60 or so. And Paul is under house arrest. This is Paul's first Roman imprisonment, and he is writing this church and, and seeking to impart to them what is proper understanding and how do we respond? How do we respond from a proper understanding of who God is? Now look at what he says. Paul writes, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Really, he is establishing right there, his frame of mind and reference. Paul hasn't thought in his mind that to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be solely in his will, keeps him free from devastation, destruction, and danger. In fact, he, writing from amidst a Roman prison, he recognized that occasionally to serve Christ is to suffer. 
And it didn't deter him. It wasn't an indication that he had done something wrong. But in fact, his life was wholly surrendered to Jesus and who he is. And he recognized the hand of God covering every situation he found himself in. Paul, as an apostle, one who is witness to the risen Christ, he says, by the will of God. He didn't elect himself to this post. He didn't convince other people to appoint him to this post. He merely found himself there by the will, by the purposes of God. Now look at how he addresses these folks. He says that he is writing to the saints, and then he further qualifies them. He says, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. See, Paul gives us this understanding. This is kind of what we saw in James in a much longer, much longer study, that those who are saints, those who are set apart, who are dedicated to Jesus, respond faithfully. Let that hit you for a second. Your identification with Jesus Christ. He saved you. He set you apart. You recognized that you were sinful. You cried out to him for forgiveness. You confessed those things. You repented. And he saved you. And he set you apart. What necessarily means that you are faithful to him. So it's not this once and done. It's not that you made a decision. He says, okay, okay, okay. You just go on, Charles. You just go on, Gloria. You just live your life however you want to. Philip and Kay, you just live your life however you want to because you made a decision in the past and that's ultimately what I'm most concerned about. You see, what we did when we baptized a few moments ago is people gave a ready testimony of a change that took place inside and they are committing to demonstrating fruits over the course of their life. Not because they're so good, great, and wonderful and because they're gonna set themselves to that task but because the God who gave them a new heart will help it continue to beat over the course of their life as they submit themselves to his will, as they seek to lay all things at his feet. That's who Paul is, and that's who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the faithful. He's writing to those who are living lives in full submission to Jesus Christ, to Christ who is the rightful king over all things in their lives. Now look at the the last part of his greeting to them in verse two. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. And there are any number of things that take place in our life that can be covered by God's grace by an extension of his peace. This isn't something we can engineer. We can't belabor this point enough. If you're struggling with with anxiety and difficulties in your life and and, and you're trying to put these things under rest and under tension and, and just to keep these things where they belong so they don't interfere with the rest of your life, you can't do it on your own. Right? There's no amount of counseling, there's no amount of medication that can accomplish these things for you. Ultimately, ultimately, there is no peace, there is no grace outside of Jesus Christ, and we see this stems from, it comes from God. But look further how Paul describes him. You see, it's not some some generic God, this plug-and-play God that we just kind of put him in and you get to make him in your own wide decision. But he says it is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this Judeo-Christos sense of who God is. He is the one true God. Met with a lady this week who had this really fascinating backstory of spirituality. 
She came in, she had a need, and so we began to address this and how she needed it. And I said, look, we meet needs in the community because we want to tell people about Jesus and who he is. And so let me help you with the need, and then let's, let's move to this. Because I don't ever want them to think that if they don't accept Jesus Christ, that, you know, that they're getting help as contingent upon me helping them with the gospel. And so I helped her and began to talk, and she said, I said, what's your, what's your spiritual background? What does that look like for you? She said, well, I grew up, uh, I grew up Jehovah's Witness. And I said, okay, this is going to be interesting. And so she said, I grew up Jehovah's Witness, but at 16, my mom said, when we get 16, we can make our own decisions. And so I left the church and decided to pursue a different course. I said, well, what did that look like for you? She said, well, then I became a baptized Lutheran. I said, whoa, okay, you're a JW, then you become a Lutheran. I said, well, where are you now? Are you Lutheran? And she said, well, I like some things about being Lutheran. I said, okay, what things do you like? She's like, the Bible, I'm I'm just saying, Matt, it's got some good stuff in it, but it's also got some bad stuff in it. Because I also believe in reincarnation. I said, you know, you've got a really interesting background, a really interesting story. And so we begin to enter into this dialogue. And I kept telling her, I was like, look, the Bible can only purport to be what it says it is. Like, it can only be what it is communicating itself to be. You can't pick and choose what you believe and say, oh, I really like this because it makes me feel good about myself. But I don't so much like this stuff about sin over here because that's, that's kind of devastating. See, she sought to model God for what made her comfortable, those things that delighted her, those things that satisfied her, those things ultimately that did not shock or terrify her. What we see here is a dogmatic stance on who God is. You have to accept God for who the Bible communicates him to be. He's not some tame creature that you can make and fashion and and form into who you want him to be. You see, he comes to you and he demands all of you. He demands complete submission and obedience. And to rend anything else to him other than 100% submission to him is to approach him as being a God of your own making and not being the God that scripture records him to be. This God who is the father, the text tells us, of our Lord, of our sovereign, of the authority over our lives, Jesus the Messiah, the cosmic Messiah, the one who could set right, redeem humanity, and save us all from sin and death. It is this God. And it's his son that Paul is so preoccupied with communicating so many different facets of how we are in him, how we are identified with him in the first 14 verses here in the book of Ephesians. You see, as we come into verse 3, what we find is the beginning of a sentence in the Greek. And so in the Greek text, if you're rocking along, you read 1 and 2, you find a period, and then you read verse 3 through verse 14 before you find the end of that thought. And so when they would have sat down, they would have read this all as one thought, and then they would have come back and picked it apart. But what we're going to do is pick it apart 3 through 6 today, 7 through 10, and then we'll pick up and we'll do the last part. So we'll take it in three or four chunks instead of in one. But look what he starts off with. This is who you are. You're saints and faithful. This is who he is, king, sovereign over the universe. And this is what you need to do with that. Verse 3, he says, blessed be God. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. He almost repeats what he said before. But he takes that title, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he attributes praise back to him. So he says this understanding of who God is, of what our response should be, is one of praise and one of adoration. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. We want to assume that we are the central character in our life story. And so Steve looks at his life, he says, look, and I said, Steve, who's the central character of your story? And it would be a very common answer for you to say, well, Steve doesn't say, Ben, who is the central character of your story? And he, you know, his wife's standing beside him, and he says, well, Angela is. I say, Angela, who's the central char- character of Ben's story? She says, well, Ben is. And then they talk about that later, and they laugh. And everybody else is just thinking, oh, they missed it. He was setting them up. You see, but the central character of all of humanity's story is God. And the central plot line for each of our independent stories climaxes with our response to who he is. Like you might look at your life and you say, the climax of the, life, of the story of my life is, is reaching academic success, is finding success in a marriage, is having grandchildren, great-grandchildren. The central success, the climax of my life is at a memorial service held from me and where everybody stands back and they say, Matt was such an amazing guy. I got news for you. There's going to be this naysayer in the back who says, no, no, he's not. Especially if the, if the service goes like that. See, the, the central character of all of our life stories is God, and the climax of all of those stories is our response to him. And the shape of the story of our life is impacted in how we respond to who he declares himself to be. So Paul writes, And he says right here in verse 3, and he says, blessed be God. God is to be praised on just by virtue of who he is. He's to be praised on the virtue of who he is, but he's giving us this response that he's also to be praised as we recognize what he has done. So he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this here. He says, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed all believers everywhere, where? In Christ, with what? Spiritual blessings held where? In the heavenly places. See, unfortunately, you go to most people And you put it to them like this. You say, look, I I can extend to you vast material blessing that's temporal. It's going to fade out. It's going to fail. Or I can extend to you immeasurable, infinite, everlasting spiritual blessing. Which one do you want? Which one do you want? And the overwhelming response of people, and we see this, right? You see this in the number of people that respond positively and negatively to the gospel. What we see in this is that the overwhelming number of people prefer immediate material blessing. And so if we are able then to tie Christianity with material blessing, like we will get them. They will come in, and so if we go up, and, and, and Joe's a non-Christian, and I go to Joe and say, Joe, let me tell you this. If you come to Jesus, dude, everything is going to be great for you. Your marriage is going to take off. Your wife's just going to be popping out babies left and right, if that's a good thing to you. And, and, 
and all these things are going to be great. Your health is going to be beyond question. Everything's going to be tremendously fantastic for you. Joseph says, can I get two of those to go? Because I want to take one back to my wife as well. But if I go to him instead and say, Joe, I want to present to you a gospel that demands ultimate submission for you. That we read in the writings of Jesus, he said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If we present this gospel, this gospel that calls us to die to self, to live to Christ, that our righteousness isn't our own, but it's his. When we present this gospel, Joe's faced with a choice. He's faced with this difficult choice of surrendering and dying to self and living to Christ. But ultimately, Joe, i got to tell you, if you would receive Christ, if you would profess faith in Christ, he would change everything for you. And so that whether over the course of your life you're rich or you're poor or you have joys in abundance or sorrows every day, still you'd be able to declare as we did moments ago that Jesus is better. So he comes to us and he says, this is why God should be praised because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's radically transformed the story of your life. He found you at your supposed climax, the trajectory of where you were headed, and showed you that all those were empty promises. All those were vain glory. And he set you on a different trajectory, and he intersected you at the point of your utmost need, which is a spiritual need. It is salvation. And he set you on the right path at the moment you submitted yourself to him. He goes on to give us a further explanation of what these spiritual blessings are in 4 through 14. And we're going to look at a couple of them today. But you're going to discover that some of these spiritual blessings are his choosing, his predestining. And ultimately in 14, it is his sealing. But let's look at some of these right here in our near view. We come to verse 4 and he says, God is to be blessed He gives us spiritual blessing, and the first one of these is that he chose us in him. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. See, the Bible teaches that that God created, that man rebelled, and that God redeems, and that Christ is coming again. That's the gospel in short form. But it wasn't that God created humanity, that man sinned against him, and God just said, you know, he's sitting there wringing his hands thinking, what do I do next? What do I do next? Oh, I just can't figure this out. This is such a quandary. And he assembles the other members of the Godhead together. He's like, what do you think, fellas? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, man. It was going so well until that snake showed up. Like, that didn't happen. Some of you are like, oh, my goodness, this is good stuff. i got to write this down. That didn't happen. i got to go back and tell all my friends. No, like, that didn't happen. See, God established that this is the way it will work out. All believers everywhere who are saved are chosen in Jesus Christ. All believers everywhere are chosen not in their good works, not in their good looks, not in their accomplishments, but are chosen in Jesus. Like this is it. This is the gospel that you are chosen in Jesus. And God chose you in Jesus before he 
created. The text sets it up and it paints this picture that the world is built on foundations and before all of those things existed Christ and at the heart of Christ, you were there. And some of you read this and what you say is, yeah, but what's my response? How do I get there? Because I wasn't there. And so we enter into these theological debates and you totally miss the tenor of this. If you read Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, and you walk away and you say, yeah, but at what point did I really choose for him? And at what point, like how did that happen? God's outside of time, I'm inside of time. And you start wrangling these things, you've totally missed it. Totally missed it. Paul gives us this tremendous hint on the front side. God is to be praised. God is to be praised. He chose you in Christ. God is to be praised. He chose you in Christ. God is to be praised. He's to be blessed. He's to be adored. He's to be responded to appropriately. And when did he do this thing? When did he affect your ends cosmically? He chose you in him before he created. He chose you in him before he created. Now look at this. For what purpose? For what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose you in Christ before anything else, so he'd be holy and blameless. There is purpose in his choosing. See, but it works a couple of different ways. There's this idea of imputed righteousness. This is just kind of this fancy talk for him saying, he looks at you, he looks at Wilson, and he reckons him righteous and blameless. Holy and blameless is what the text tells us here. So when God is is coming to him, when he's coming to Ken and Zach and and, and Sadie and Chase, and he looks at them and they confess their sins and the blood of Jesus covers the stain of sin, they are seen by God as being holy and blameless. It's imputed righteousness. Let's see where else this shows up. Flip over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 Isaiah is writing and describing the Messiah. He's describing this Jesus who would come. We're going to look in a few places. But Isaiah 53, as you're turning there, speaking of the Messiah, says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. There's this cosmic exchange that takes place. For all of our iniquities, all of our sin, every sideways glance, every careless word, every selfish deed, everything done wrong. Christ bore. And he bears it for all who are believers. And he stands ready to bear it all for any who would cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. We pick it up again in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to look at a couple of places in 1 Peter because it does this so well. There's this pivot point. 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus 
He says, he bore our sins. This is what Isaiah was talking about. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was crucified. He was crucified. And he bore your iniquity, your shame, your sins. The text goes on to say that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It is much as you identify with Christ. You are found in him. He has saved you. He's done this work of transformation and healing. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been healed of the disease, of, of the, really the plight of humanity. You've been healed from the stain of sin. He has made you righteous, holy, and blameless. That's imputed righteousness. That's what that is. But also at work within this text is this idea of sanctification. Now, sanctification is where it it begins to get a little more difficult for us. Sanctification is the idea of we receive the fact that he has imputed us as righteous. He has declared what we are in his sight because of the blood of Christ. Sanctification is the process of dying to self. This is what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Just flip back over to the left. He says, But as he who called you is holy, as Jesus who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You talk about throwing it down. What a tremendous challenge. The God of the universe comes to you and says, The one who saved you is holy. You too be holy in everything you do. Like there's nothing that escapes the demand to be holy. There's nothing that escapes the demand that we are to surrender everything, to live our lives holy in submission to who he is, and on the basis of what? It says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This relationship with God calls us to demonstrate what he has done for us in, internally. It calls this that as we enter into conversations with people that just, man, just infuriate the snot out of us. We exude blamelessness and holiness. Maybe some of you have, have family lives and jobs that are just perfect and you, just, you, you never raise your voice and everything's just amazing for you. Leave, because you people are gross. Like, I, don't, I don't get that. I just don't see that at all. But for everybody else that's still here and still listening, right, life is tough. Repeatedly we get in situations with people you disagree with people that it is difficult to, to demonstrate compassion to. It is easy, comparatively, to go through our lives and be holy and blameless when everything is perfect. But when you and your spouse are arguing, when your boss comes in, he's a complete jerk. When you're trying to get something done from the government, you're just like, are you serious? I thought this was to help people. You're just, you make me want to help you by putting my hands around. Okay. Nobody's been to the DMV lately. (laughs) And so it's this amazing thing that he declares what we are and then he calls us to live a life in submission to that reality. And it's tremendously difficult. But as sojourners through this world together, we are supposed to be aiding one another 
aiding one another and bringing praise and glory and honor to Jesus. We read that he chose us. He chose us to be holy and blameless. And then we read in this next verse that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. See, God's not just this cosmic wizard pulling strings, but he looks at this subject and he is moved with compassion and love. As we studied the book of Malachi together, do you remember back to Malachi 1-2, I have loved you, declares the Lord. When it comes to terms of, of predestining and ordering these things, God established that our reconciliation to him would be by virtue of adoption. He would adopt us as sons and he would do it through Jesus Christ. He chose us in Jesus, he adopts us through Jesus. Jesus, as the first among many brethren, surrendered his life so that we might be adopted, so that Mary might be adopted, so that Chase and Lydia might be adopted, so that Ashley and Brent might be adopted, so that Jason and Kelsey might be adopted, so we might join in the family of God. This isn't something we accomplish on our own, but it is something he accomplishes for us through the precious shed blood of Jesus. And then we find there at the end of verse five that all this, all of this is according to the purpose of his will. God's not making a plan and adjusting according to how we respond, but he is seeing through the course of his intentions, of his desires. Amen? He holds our salvation sure and steady because he's not caught off guard by what we do. He's not shaken by our weakness, by our inability, by our our fallenness. In fact, it is because of those things that he had to save us this way. See, some of us have the mistaken assumption that we were inherently good people, that God did himself along with us a favor when he saved us. But we'll come to find that in Ephesians 2, that we were dead. That we were dead in our trespasses. And we liked it. And then he turned the light on. And he showed us what it is to be redeemed, what it is to be saved. And you know what the great summation of this all is? What our response to the choosing to the pre-ordering or predestining of God, what it rightly should be. It's not theological inquiry. It's not that you go home, you break out three contradictory study Bibles. You've got the Ryrie Bible, you've got the ESV Bible, and then you've got the, you know, the guy in the Internet's Bible. And you're, you're pulling through their little commentary on the end, and, and then you pull out all of your wife's hair because you love yours and you've only got five of them left. And you say, how can this all be? I don't understand how all these things can work together. If you do that, if you spend your afternoon doing that, you completely miss the intention of this passage. It's not theological inquiry. It's bold, unashamed worship. He chose you. He predestined that you be adopted as sons. He chose you that you be holy and blameless. And you get into verse 6, and Paul says, all of these things are to the praise of his glorious grace. Blessed be God. 
He chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Praise be to God. We praise and worship the grace that he saved us. And this is what we find. We praise his glorious grace. And it is this glorious grace with which he saved us where? In the beloved. You read through Ephesians. And there's going to be this tremendous temptation over the next 25 weeks to put on your theological thinking caps and to dig in and try and, and, and just reconcile with these things with how you want them to be. And that can be healthy. What the text is calling us to is worshiping the God who saved you. Staring into the mystery of what he has done and choosing instead of theological inquiry to, to selfless, unashamed reckless praise and worship of God and to do so in every facet of your life. And this, this is the difficult thing he calls us to. Because you have to ask yourself, you have to to think, what does this look like for me? This isn't something where, where we say, this is what he's done. No, you go out and be kind to five people. You can do that. You hit the sixth person and you say, yes, I hate you. This demands everything. This demands our all. When you recognize what God has done for you, when you recognize that before anything was spun into existence, that this plan was in place to make you holy and blameless, to pull you into his family of sons, creates humility on our part in this eager understanding and expectation that we should worship the king in all we do. So this is what we're going to do this week. We're going to submit ourselves to the idea that he should be worshipped in everything we do because of what he's done. And we're going to take that holistic approach to saying, God, what would worship look like for me to worship you on the basis of all of these things and who you are? So at the grocery store, at the dentist, at the doctor, at work, as you talk with your spouse, as you talk to your family, your friends, as you prepare to yell at the person that cuts you off in traffic, what does it look like to worship the sovereign God of all things on the basis of what he has done for us? Let me pray and ask God's provision, his blessing, his guidance, and his wisdom for us as we endeavor to do this thing.